Hey everybody, this is Townsend. Thank you so much for tuning in. As a lot of you know, these conversations began as joined live streams that turned into podcasts to help reach more people and spread more hope. Thank you so much for your patience with the quality of sound as we figure out the best way to bring you these important chats, just in hopes of spreading more love and positivity. I hope you enjoy. And we've got a ton of people logged in for the 17th time. This is Townsend. This is Kyle. Um, I'm interviewing him. Today's topic is mostly about addiction. Um, he's going through what he calls long-term recovery. And I wanted to learn a little bit about it myself. And I thought he was the perfect person to do it. So he's just going to kind of talk about his testimony, his process through everything. And I know personally, I know a lot of people that struggle with this topic. So I'm super interested in just kind of shining a light on the subject. Um, so Colin has a question. It says, for someone struggling with addiction, living on the streets, what advice do you have for family members who want to help but aren't sure what to do? If going the legal route to try and admit a loved one, is there success in that process? So it's kind of two questions in one. So basically, what advice do you have for family members who want to help but aren't sure what to do? What would you say about that? Well, that's that's a common uh, question uh, to have a lot of conversation with family members, just like a lot of people have a lot of conversations with my family members. Um, and it, the, the answer to the question is not one that people necessarily like to hear, because the the reality is that we ultimately can't do anything until an individual wants to do something themselves. And that's a really hard um, place to be as a family member. My mom, my family, they watched me battle for a long time. And there they came to a point where my mom went to some meetings called Al-Anon, which are uh, support meetings for family members of uh, people that are in addiction. So the loved ones um, and they go there and they find kind of their part in the whole process because the disease of addiction is certainly a family um, disease because it affects like Colin's referring to the whole family, not just the person going through it. Um, and so they, she went there and she learned about enabling. She learned about how maybe she had even been contributing to my problem, but she also learned how to let go without giving up. And so there's, those are two different things. You know, you don't give up on a loved one. My family never gave up on me, but they certainly let go. And, you know, it's sad because I didn't like get help as soon as they let go. But what I did start experiencing was a lot of the consequences for my actions and that bottom that I kept hitting started getting harder and harder and harder because there wasn't someone there, uh, you know, to bail me out of jail, to provide me a warm place to sleep, um, to bring me money when I come up with it, whatever kind of crazy story I've came up with this time. They simply, um, for several years, I wasn't allowed on my family's property unless I was going to treatment that day. Uh, it wasn't necessarily like you can go to treatment tomorrow, but if I was on the property, we're going to treatment that day. And so it got to that point, and that was uh, – I look back, and I called my family and my mom every name in the book. Like I hated her, threatened to kill myself, and, you know, terrible things. And I was so mad and so angry. But I, And I didn't know it then, but I know it now that that's ultimately one of the things that saved my life because if she wouldn't have made those tough decisions uh, and helped me uh, get to a place on my own, then I, I wouldn't be here today. I, I, I would be dead. Um, so I'm thankful that she did that, but – you know, it wasn't she made the decision and there was instant results that I was like, OK, I want help. I mean, there was three to three to five years after she went to Al-Anon and they stopped enabling me where I, you know, suffered a lot of consequences, was homeless. Um, like you're referring to someone on the street is 
Um, if you know, the best thing you can do is to, if they want help or if they're willing to have a conversation with someone like myself or somebody else that has had experience and been in the place that they're at, get them connected to them. Because my family for a long time tried to get through to me. And honestly, three and a half years ago, when, when I was uh, went to the Nehemiah House of Program here in Little Rock, I was hearing a lot of the same information that my family had been saying for years, but the difference was who it was coming from. Uh, my family is not all, all, oftentimes not the right person to try to deliver that message because of that relationship that you've had for so long. And so, you know, that's a lot, I know, but the advice would be to um, realize that it's not your fault um, and also realize that there's a, there's a way to, to let go without giving up. And if the individual's ready or willing for whatever reason, it doesn't matter the motivation, if they're willing to talk to someone about what's going on and potentially pursue treatment, get them connected with somebody. And then the rest, you know, is up to them. Uh, you know, it's just really up to them to kind of initiate that and engage in that process. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's great. So she also says if going the legal route to try and admit a loved one, is there success in that process? Uh, I wouldn't recommend it. I'm not going to, I can't speak to if there's success of in that process. Um, I'm sure there has been some times where that has been successful. Um, but I, uh, I'm a believer in the fact that um, when you force somebody to do something, I think more oftentimes than not, when the, when the, the, whatever the, the reason an individual is forced to do something, when that's removed, um, then the, the, a lot of times they may resort back to what they were doing because um, they were trying to appease this court order. Not saying it can't work. I'm not saying not to try it. But I, uh, you know, certainly in my in the field of work I do as a peer support specialist, we are all about empowering an individual to make their own choices and to set their own path and to uh, take those steps on their own um, as we as we guide and walk with them. Um, and, you know, so I don't it could work, um, but it, it, it oftentimes is a it's a really delicate, tricky situation when you involve, uh, you know, legal situations into the process. I can only imagine. Um, so a little bit. So kind of a background. I got a hold of your bio since we're not trying the Facebook thing. So this is Kyle. He is a certified peer recovery support specialist and one of 10 certified peer support supervisors in the state. So he's also got a science um, in addiction study or bachelor's of science in addiction studies from UCA. Um, he's got a lot of accolades. So super cool to chit chat with him. All right. So what we're going to do, I've got a few questions that I want to ask Kyle just to kind of chit chat about his story. I want him to be able to share it with you guys. And then I had a lot of feedback for him. So we're going to do some questions at the very end. If that's cool with you, Kyle. Yeah, absolutely. And then if you guys have any questions along the way, throw them in the comments. We'll be happy to stop and answer for you. All right. So you kind of did this a little bit earlier, but give a brief summary of your story. So like I know, like I said, when you introduced yourself, you gave a little bit, but kind of tell us why you're here. Like when did the addiction start? When did it end? And how the heck did you get where you are now? Yeah. So it's certainly a long story, so I will uh, yeah. just let's summarize it and then we'll jump it. in. Uh, so I started using alcohol when I was about 12 years old. That quickly progressed to using marijuana where I, where I got arrested at the age of 16 and kind of took on that, uh, that personality, that identity of the pothead, the person that likes to drink. And so all throughout high school, I was on probation and experimenting with other drugs. Went off to college. I got my wisdom teeth removed. 
and got a prescription of opioids and I started abusing those every day while also drinking, using other drugs, smoking weed, you know, those were just kind of givens. Um, but the pills became like my new priority, my, my main drug of choice. But also I was also doing really good in school. That was actually where I first met you or came to know you Townsend. My friend Brad Cash was also into music. Yeah. And so I remember knowing you from that time in life. Um, but I did really well in school. One of, It's like a little unusual. You think of an addict or someone struggling with addiction. You think like Colin mentioned on the street, you know, struggling, that type of situation. You know, I was I was doing really well, dressed nice. I was holding leadership positions uh, on, on in campus organizations in my fraternity. I was making really good grades, um, letters getting sent home from the dean, the president about the grades I was making. Uh, so I was really doing well. And outside, you look at it, you know, a guy in his 20s was, was doing everything he should be doing. He was doing it well. But un- underneath all that, I was abusing pain pills every day. Um, and I was spending hundreds of dollars on these pills. Um, I was also um, pursuing, uh, ironically, at the same time, a Bachelor's of Science in Addiction Studies because uh, substance use is is very prevalent in my family. And I thought, you know, I was going to get this degree and I was going to help other people like my family, but not that the information actually applied to me in my personal life. So um, I graduate college, um, skimming through because my, my addiction really took over and I was spending crazy amounts of money and uh, struggling to get past that last semester in school. But I remember waking up that day when I walked across the stage and I, and I don't remember it being like a glorious day or a day of celebration. I remember it being a day where I woke up and I was sick and I was in withdrawal and I was trying to figure out how I was going to get something to, because I know family was coming into town. I had to put on that, that, that face, you know, and, and look like everything's cool and everything's good. And I'm, you know, it should be a day that I remember as like I'm celebrating all the hard work and the accomplishments that I've done up to this point. The first person in my, my family to graduate from college, um, it should be that kind of day when I look back. But what I look back and remember is waking up and being in withdrawal and being sick and finally finding someone in that panic, finding someone that had some pills that I could go buy from them, going and picking them up, eating them all at once. And that given me wow. um, enough strength to walk across the stage and pick up my degree. And so I picked up that degree. And for the next year, I, I stayed up in Conway's trying to continue doing what I was doing. And uh, things started really uh, slowly um, unwinding and, and kind of falling apart. Ended up moving back home um, where I s- started getting in trouble and all the things that usually are associated with addiction, like we referred to earlier, they started happening pretty fast. Um, so this is about 2014 at this point, And it was within two years I had, I had progressed from using pills to using heroin because of the amount of money that pills cost. Heroin is cheaper. It's essentially the exact same thing, and everybody was selling it. One day I was sick. I didn't have any. I didn't have enough money to buy the pills, but my guy I was buying pills from. He was like, "Hey, I have heroin. I'll give it to you for free." And so he gave it to me that day. And from that day, I, you know, I started using heroin. Um, and it wasn't long after that that I started using a needle. You know, at this point, I only ate pills. I snorted them. I was like, I'd never use a needle. I'd never be that person. You know, that that I had. I, the image that society labels as someone that uses drugs, like I'm not that person. Right. And that's part of my problem is that I I thought that like, you know, I was different or I was like an exception and that I'd be able to do these things and suffer no consequences for them. Um, And that's just not true. It doesn't matter who you are, where you come from, your upbringing, your background, your cultural, you know, your beliefs, anything like it doesn't discriminate. And I had to learn that the hard way. And so I ended up, you know, I'm on the needle using heroin 
uh, basically ruined everything in my life. I'm in and out of jail for stealing, got a DWI, um, you know, all those, the typical things, the consequences at this time, my family had pulled out of my life. And so I'm just struggling house to house, couch to couch. Um, and I find myself in a park back in 2016, uh, I was homeless and that was the first time I went home and I was like, you know, I, I can't do nothing. So that was, that was the second time actually I went to treatment and I went to a 30 day program. I got out of there, realized I need to stop getting high, but I kept drinking alcohol. And this is an important lesson that I had to learn and many have to learn in recovery is that alcohol is the same thing. It's uh, it's a substance. And uh, those that struggle with substances, it's not a matter of which particular substance. It's all the same. And uh, so I started drinking. I kept drinking. And it wasn't long before that that I started getting high again. And within like six months from that period, I, anything I'd gained in that last nine months, I I destroyed again. It's homeless, wrecked my car, totaled my car. Um, and so it all came to like a head. Uh, July 10th of 2017, uh, I'd been in a hotel trying to get off a of heroin by using meth. And I was, you know, in a psychosis. I was hallucinating. I thought people were out to get me. And I have an uncle that was that's in recovery himself. Um, he came and picked me up and dropped me off at a homeless shelter called the Nehemiah House. This homeless shelter also has a, a recovery program. Well, the next morning, the directors came in. They called an ambulance because I was just out of my mind. And so I went to Baptist for detox. And I went from detox back to that program and I went through their nine month faith based program. And that is what started me uh, on the journey that I'm on today, where slowly but surely, um, you know, one day at a time, nothing happened overnight. I started getting hope for myself. I started believing that a life that didn't center around using drugs and alcohol was possible for me. And I started realizing, you know, that there was a God that loves me. And that there's a God that's created me for a purpose. And that purpose was not to hurt my family, my friends, and myself by using drugs and alcohol. And uh, and, I, and that being in recovery and not drinking or using drugs, it's not like a bad thing. It's not like something that's restrictive or something's been taken out of my life. It, it's actually one of the greatest gifts that I've ever been given. And so, you know, like I said, it's, it's a process that I've gone through and then I continue to go through every day. Um, and I just I learned a lot of things in that program about a relationship with God, about, you know, some some disciplines and about community, surrounding myself with some people that are trying to do the same thing as me, that love me, that care about me, that hold me accountable, that I can talk to on those days where I'm thinking about drinking or getting high and it'd be OK to just process that with somebody. I learned a lot of different principles and ways of living that I just continue to apply. And that's what, as you know, day by day brought me to where I'm at today. So that's funny you brought up college because I totally remember you and you had the long, like beautiful blonde hair. And I remember talking to people about Kyle and how shy he was. And like, I don't think you ever spoke to me, but I saw you. everywhere. You're like yeah. so shy and your hair like covered your face. Yeah. So, but like seeing your story and kind of, um, I mean, that's been 10 years ago now or more. We're kind of <laughs> aging ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> but seeing you like how far you've come one like you said I never would have guessed seeing you in college you looked like you totally had it all like you said you dressed nice you were cute you were smart you were in a fraternity super popular so definitely can't judge a book by its cover there I guess um do you feel like addiction you kind of touched on the relationship side but do you feel like addiction and mental health kind of correlate do you feel like they go together do you feel like 
maybe depression ties in with addiction or more so genetics like you were talking about? Yeah, I think it's all hand in hand, uh, you know, addiction and mental health. There's, it's co-occurring. There's a lot of substance use and mental health. And, you know, and certainly in my case, I didn't never have like a mental health diagnosis. But as a result of my drug use, you know, it, it was certainly drug induced. But I, I experienced all kinds of uh, mental health symptoms like anxiety, obviously depression, um, and, and that kind of led me, you know, and being in that psychosis, you know, they had to level me out, get me on some meds for a period of time. Um, and if that would have taken place, I'd have never got to a place where I could, you know, receive new information, receive recovery. Um, so the mental health side of things, oftentimes, because I work, you know, I work with people that are going through the same thing today. Like you have to clear that up first. And sometimes the, the mental health was substance induced and sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's co-occurring and you have to address both simultaneously. But oftentimes, you know, if you can get the mental health, uh, remove the substance, address the mental health, uh, then you can kind of get a better picture of what you're actually working with. So it's definitely hand in hand. And I think when you talk about genetics, uh, certainly genetics plays a role into addiction. I don't just because you have an, uh, a father, mother, grandmother that uses drugs or abuses drugs and alcohol does not mean that that's what you're set out to do. But I think it does play um, a role in it. Um, like I mentioned, it's certainly in my family, but my mom was the one that showed me what, how I should do things. And she set an example for me that I could have followed. You know, I made that choice long ago to, you know, um, to, to try to experiment myself. And but I think when I made that choice that I was more susceptible to to the disease of addiction once I began that journey um, than, say, someone that had nobody in their family that has suffered from the disease of addiction. So. Genetics, mental health, it's all, you know, very much, um, uh, you know, plays a huge role, a significant role in, in addiction. I can say that for sure. It's crazy. Drug induced, you know, I work with geriatrics as well, and you can have drug induced dementia and things like that, which is just wild. So, so many medications just causing so many issues. It's just crazy that it can affect so much. Yeah. Um, and when you, you know, when you use a substance for, because uh, when we use whatever our substance is, it's dopamine, it's serotonin, it's that feel yeah. good that, you know, when you release that so much over and over and over again, like you do when you abuse drugs or alcohol, you know, it damages those, you know, those those neurons and the transmitters. And, you know, I don't want to get too scientific, but it does damage in your brain. And so yeah. when when your body can no longer naturally reproduce those chemicals on its own like it used to there yeah comes in depression you know because when you can't have the things that make you naturally feel good you're not going to feel so well and so you, a lot of times uh mental health medications address those and kind of help um you know get someone you know getting those chemicals back to a regular um balance and back to some type of normal production um and so i think a lot of times that that can definitely cause a lot of the, the different mental health symptoms as well yeah absolutely that makes sense for sure so through all that, so that, how many years altogether do you feel like you struggled? Uh, from so 12 from to 12 to 27. So, okay. so quite so that, a while. Yeah. It was a, you know, if it, if it wasn't drugs, it was always alcohol. I mean, yeah. from, from the time I started, it was, you know, there was always a point in my life where I was, where I was doing something. Yeah. Yeah. And like I said, kind of in college, I mean, you fit in your fraternity, everybody's drinking. So if you're always drinking around friends, they don't notice anything, which is pretty sad. You can just put it on the back burner and nobody knows to give you help. Not that it would have helped or not helped, but it's sad that it's 
it's hard to see. Um, so what, through all those years, after all that time, was that almost 15 years, what was your aha moment that made you think like, this is it, it's time, it's time to turn around? You know, I look back today, hindsight being 2020, as they say, and I can see a lot of those moments, you know, there's several of them that probably should have been that, that key pivotal turning point. But, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't respond. And it was like, I was talking about earlier with dealing with family members that are going through this you, family can see it. Like it's so clear as day, like this is the problem. This is the issue. But when you're in the middle of it, you can't, you can't see it so clearly. And so I was, I was the same way. And so my aha moment didn't happen probably until about two months into the Nehemiah house. Um, you know, I still, I had a little bit of that moment when I was at the hospital because I mean, that psychosis and those hallucinations that I had were so real that it didn't matter what you told me. It was my reality. And now I know it wasn't real, but at the time it was. And even for a couple of weeks after, even when I wasn't, um, high anymore, it still felt so real and trying to convince myself and my mind and my body that like, Hey, this didn't happen. That was scary. That was yeah. that 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 scared me a whole lot. I'd never really been in that place, so that was like the beginning of it. But yeah. it was about two months, six weeks, eight weeks into the Nehemiah House program. I just took a. I don't. I can't tell you exactly what I was doing. It was. I think it was more of a process. I call it my process of surrendering. That I started just taking like inventory of my life and like where I was at, and you know how I was once living like you mentioned. Like I thought, you know, yeah. I was on top of the world, you know, and like I could do whatever I want and I was going on trips and, you know, everything was fun and I loved life and all these things. And then I, where was I? I found myself like essentially in a homeless shelter with nothing, no family, no friends that, you know, cause I had removed them all from my life. And I just started looking at like, is this what I want my life to be? Um, I couldn't see at that point what my life could be. But I just started believing that I didn't want my life to be what it is currently. And so my aha moment was over that eight weeks, there were some people that worked at this program and I, I was watching them and they had been through the program themselves and they were living a somewhat normal life and watching them and, and also hearing the things that I was hearing in that program. I started thinking that I could do that. You know, like I can do what they're doing. My life can look like that. And I don't have to keep doing what I'm doing today. And so it wasn't necessarily a moment. It was kind of a, a, a series uh, of different moments that led me to make a, the decision to, I, I gave my life to Jesus and also surrendered to the idea that God was going to use that program to change my life. And so I was going to also follow the rules of the program. I was going to listen to the people in the program. I was going to, you know, do, to the best of my ability, apply the stuff that they were telling me into my life. And it was when I made those two decisions when things started really turning around for me. Yeah, that's awesome. That's really cool. I bet they were like, oh, my gosh, somebody that wants to listen, like just soaked <laughs> it in. That's really cool. So and I think a lot of people actually ask this when they had a question. So when you finally decided to quit. And like I said, at the very beginning, I know several people that have struggled or currently struggle with some type of addiction. When you decided to quit and you became clean and you made this promise to yourself, do you feel like it's still a daily struggle? So is it still something you kind of have to try at or does it become natural? You don't even crave it anymore. Well, I, I saw that question and honestly, I'm a piece of paper right here. I, I marked out struggle when I put process. So it is much a daily process. I don't want to refer to it as yeah. a daily struggle because that 
indicates that I'm just like struggling through yeah. life. And I'm not <laughs> struggling through life by any means, but I am always in a process. Uh, yeah. Just like addiction took a long time to get me to where I was at. Recovery is a process, but I have to remain in. And it's not that I have to do. Uh, it's not like it started like at the beginning, like you have to do this. Today, I get to do these things. Like I get to live a life that is free from drugs and alcohol. But if I stop doing the things that I've been doing to get me to this place, it may not happen overnight, but slowly but surely, I will slide back into old patterns of thinking and behaving. And more than likely, I will end up using drugs and alcohol again. And so um, I won't say it's a daily struggle, but it's I would say that I've learned a new lifestyle and that I had to continue to live that lifestyle and practice the tools and the principles that I've learned in that lifestyle to continue to get the same results that I had today. But it's not a struggle. It's actually a blessing, and I'm thankful for it. It's a really abundant life. And, uh, you know, like I mentioned earlier, having those days where life is life, storms of life come. They're going to come. We all face them, especially of the year we just came out of. I mean, uh, how many storms did we each face individually and as a whole? But when those storms come and maybe even that thought to get a pill or drink comes because it may come and it does come. Like I've learned today that that's a thought and a thought does not have to become an action. But something that I've learned in recovery, the thought has to become something and that something can look different for different people. But for me, you know, it can look like a phone call. It can look like getting coffee with another person in recovery. It can look like going to a meeting. It can look like going to church. It can look like just getting myself out into nature and doing something like that, going playing sports. I got to do something with it, you know, but I, I know today that I have a choice and I don't have to act on that thought even when it comes um, but definitely, you know, there's some days that when just life's smacking you in the face and, you know, there's that crazy thought that, you know, this might solve this problem, but you don't act on it. You just apply the principles of recovery. It's kind of like when there's a brownie in the kitchen and I don't, I know I don't need it. I can't even fight that urge. So I don't know. I can't <laughs> imagine how hard it is. I mean, honest to goodness, I cannot imagine how tough that struggle is and to actually overcome it. Because if you put a sugar sweet something in my kitchen, it doesn't matter how much I tell myself not to eat it, I'm going to end up eating it. So yeah. I just can't imagine that, like, so, but so proud of you. You know, but that's like today. So, like, if you hadn't eaten sugar or a brownie for three years, it yeah. would be a lot harder to make that decision. So I, I want to clarify, like, the craving and the urge, nowhere near as strong as it used to be, sure. right? Um, sure. So it's it's not like that, but it's and yeah. also like the life that I've gained through these last three and a half years through recovery. It also makes that decision so much harder. Like if you cut out sugar or you cut out sweets and you're and you're, you're fit and, and you've gained a lot of benefits from that decision and you're three years into it, you're like, it makes it hard to make that decision yeah. because you understand that you're going to get you're going to give up these benefits that you've earned and the life that you've earned. Um, if you do so. So it definitely becomes easier in that sense. Um, and the craving like that fit in the physical dependency part of yeah. it is not there anymore. Yeah. Yeah, man, that's awesome. That's if you were here, I'd give you a round of applause. But seriously, that <laughs> I can't I can't imagine how much just discipline it takes. So I'm super proud of you and anybody that's gone through that. And I actually have a really good friend I've gotten close with lately. Uh, he's in the music scene and he talked about, he kind of struggled with the same thing and they were actually um, pretty much going to lock him up, like put him in a, I don't even know the best word that it's not a penitentiary, but it's almost just like a house for people like that and just keep him locked up. And 
somebody came to him, gave him a second chance and said, hey, we believe that you can turn around. They met with the board, ended up letting him out into life and giving him a second chance. And I just think how many people get locked up or put away or put in like a house and don't get that chance because nobody saw them, which is a whole different conversation. But ever since he told me that and talking to you, I'm just like, what if people didn't see you and the opportunities that could have come from that? You know what I mean? Some people just need a little bit of help, a little bit of light to get out of that dark place. So because both of you had ended up being amazing, inspiring, just great, great people in the world. You just had a tough time. Yeah. And, you know, uh, incarceration or um, punishing someone or shaming someone is not the answer to addiction. Recovery is the recovery and treatment is the answer to addiction. And, you know, that's the path to give someone their life back. And then and then when they get their life back, the the sky's the limit. You know, some people that, that are involved in drug and alcohol addiction are some of the smartest, most innovative, creative people I've ever met. Yeah. Because, you know, you, you, you become that way when when you when you're living that life. You know, it may not seem like it, but you're essentially waking up each and every day and battling to to live. Um, and you're you're making something out of nothing each and every day. And, and you know, you put yourself in some incredibly dangerous situations. And my point is that um, gi- giving someone an opportunity to find recovery and treatment is the answer to, to addiction. And, uh, there are great programs in jails and penitentiaries as well, which is good. So I'm very thankful for that, especially here in Arkansas, they're making a lot of progress on offering recovery programs while someone is incarcerated. So they can, you know, be addressing, you know, you got to get down to the reasons that we use drugs and alcohol, you know, you know, there's reasons behind all these things and there's reasons we all kind of end up going down that path. And until you really address those, um, you, you can't really pull up the roots and kind of start planting some new seeds. I know you kind of mentioned going to church and going to meetings and meeting with these guys. And I see you post pictures all the time. You're so social, which I feel like is super important because one of the worst things you can do is just isolate and be by yourself. So mm-hmm. what's something this long into it that helps you stay clean and helps you stay on the right track? Like, is that pretty much what it is? Church and meetings and friends and well, so the, there's a, the steps of recovery. There's 12 steps in the 12th one. Um, and you don't work these steps. You're like, all right, 12, I'm done. Go on. Yeah. You know, like, you just like someday you're working through them all in one day. Like, you know, every day I wake up, I have to step one. I admit that I'm powerless over drugs and alcohol. And if I start using again, my life will become unmanageable. Um, but step 12 is giving back. It's all about taking the message and, and sharing it with other people. And so, uh, I do that. I get to do that for a job. And it's amazing yeah. that I get to work with people that are in the exact same place that I was not too long ago. Three and a half years ago is not that long ago. And it, so to be able to share that with someone and kind of walk them through that process and walk with them is, you know, that's part of my recovery. But, you know, I go to certain meetings throughout the week, uh, recovery meetings, uh, where I get to open myself up, be vulnerable, share openly, honestly, and transparently and about what I'm going through, my personal recovery, because even though I'm I'm all about giving back and helping others, like I got to keep I got self care and maintaining my own personal recovery is number one. Because if I'm not doing that, I will eventually neglect that so much where I will be no use to anybody else. I can't pour from an empty cup, and so I have to continuously fill my cup up. And what that looks like for me is attending recovery meetings, 
surrounding myself with other people in recovery and also the local church and, and the faith community is very, very important to me. It's a very big part of my life, my story. Uh, you know, relationship with Jesus and the local church is what ultimately saved my life. And so I'm in, heavily involved in both areas of life. In a lot of ways, they overlap. Um, and, and, but I, I have two different kind of tracks that I focus on and my faith track and my recovery track. And sometimes they marry each other and come together and sometimes they're separate. But both of them give me life. Both of them give me accountability. Uh, both of them give me a safe place to process through what I'm going through. And, uh, you know, not, they both also give me a place to give back. So that's kind of what it looks like for me. And, and sometimes it's just like on a daily basis, talking on the phone with people and like, you know, like things that might be like normal. Like recently I was transitioning or getting job opportunities offered for me. Like I've never been in that place in my life where someone's offering me a job. So that was new for me. You know, like yeah. that's a new, new thing. And so I had to talk to people and process through like, what do I do here? You know, yeah. how does this look? And what are all these feelings? And I'm getting frustrated. I'm scared, you know, anxious, insecurity, yeah. all this stuff. So just talking through life with people is one of the most important things for me too. Yeah, absolutely. I, I couldn't imagine the people that have to do it on their own or think they have to do it on their own. And kind of like you said earlier, it's almost like part of the process is to be alone and realize your family cut you off and you said, although it's really hard, that's kind of the right thing to do because you don't want to enable people. So I can only imagine how dark and lonely that is, but to see where it led is just super cool. That's awesome. That's really awesome. Um, so speaking of your mom and things like that, I know you said, obviously it kind of hindered your relationship during that time and you came back. So when you came back and you were like, no, okay, like for real, I'm quitting this time. Was she like super hesitant about it? Did she believe you? What, how did that work out? How did you get your family back on your side and to realize like you're actually changing this time? Yeah, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't that kind of conversation. It wasn't like, Hey, I'm doing this. Good. Um, yeah. It was, uh, you know, I was, I was on my own, you know, like okay. they came and visited me at detox, you know, they're there. My family was there. Um, no doubt, but they let me go. You know, and what that what I mean by that is they let me spin out of control and do my things and keep me in jail, not bail me out, let me be homeless, yeah. don't listen to the sad stories, all those things. And yeah. and then when this happened, you know, when like I said, my uncle had picked me up and dropped me off and then I went to the hospital. They came and visited me a few days in and it wasn't like uh oh, okay, like we believe you, like let's go now. You know, I think it was like four or five months into the program where they were like I think they had even, my mom was like, hey, you know, if you want to come home, you can. And and that was, they, I think this is one of the most pivotal times where they recognized some change where I said, you know, that's not what I want to do. Not that I, w I don't appreciate it, but sure. I know that's not where I'm supposed to be. So it was more of like my relationships with my family are just a side effect of the process. Yeah. It wasn't necessarily something that was uh, improved on the moment that I made the decision. It's like a long game. You know, I may, I did a lot of hurt, a lot of damage. And I used to say that I was changing a lot of different times. I mean, like yeah. I mentioned, I mean, I put on a pretty good front that I was doing okay. So, um, you know, today, I mean, just even a, like last week, just having some really great conversation with mom and dad just about where I'm at in life and how proud they are of me. I mean, I'm, a, I'm allowed to be at the house. They want me at yeah. the house. Uh, <laughs> I mean, my dad let, letting him let me him let me borrow his truck to help someone move. Like I remember like crying when I was doing that. And I, cause it was just oh. such a big deal. Like my dad let me take his vehicle. That, that was like, 
because I'd done that in the past and I totaled their cars, you know, like, yeah, yeah. Uh, so that was a big deal. And, but it took a while, you know, so I also like would say that, like, if anybody's on that path and there's been damage done in their family, um, you know, trust that the process will restore those relationships, but it will take time and it, it will take more than us saying we're going to do something. It's going to take a lot of us doing what we're saying we're doing and probably doing that for an extended period of time um, and maybe not even seeing any results. Um, but somewhere along the way, people will see there's some change happening and there's some real change occurring. And, you know, and there'll be times for restoration in those relationships to occur. Yeah, absolutely. Man, that's awesome. So I guess things with your parents are doing pretty good. I saw you post a video of, I guess, a nephew or something. Yeah, yeah, on his my, toy. Little, my, oh, man. my little cousin. Yeah, a cousin. Yeah, man, that yeah. was so sweet. So cute. Man, that is awesome to be able to get back with your family and then to trust you like that feeling of trust i can't imagine how awesome that feels oh like yeah said, being able to take his truck and makes me want to cry for you that's awesome so cool yeah no it's amazing i i'm so thankful you know i'm thankful for my parents my family that like i said there was there's a period of time where they had to let me go understandably so but they never gave up on me you yeah, know so don't ever give powerful. up don't ever give up on the family members but you know sometimes you gotta let them go and I'm thankful that the moment that I did turn back and start getting help, they were in my corner, you know, and they were on my yeah. team. Yeah, man, that's great. All right. So last question for me, and then we're going to go in. We got about 10 questions from people that um, emailed and wanted me to ask you. We got about 15 minutes for Instagram kicks us off. So we'll kind of go quick. All right. What is one piece of advice that you would give others that are struggling? So like I said, I know several people personally that have in the past, or that are currently doing so. So if you had to pick one thing, what would it be? What would, what would your word of advice be? I would say, don't believe the lie that you're alone. And what I mean by that is to reach out. And I know it may be hard and I know it may be difficult, but don't believe that you're alone and that there's not someone that's going to be there for you. Um, because if nobody else is, I'm here and I will, I will help you. I will walk with you. Um, but more than anything, just don't believe that lie, because I know I felt that way for a long time. I believed that I was alone and it kept me from reaching out. You know, it kept me from, you know, even trying to pursue help. So um, I am going to like give you I, I don't I can say it right now, but my phone number that anybody wants help, they can call me. And my cell phone number is five zero one seven nine four nine nine three zero. And you can call me and we can walk through that journey together. But um, just don't believe the lie that you're alone because you're not. Yeah, I love it. Ironically enough, I'm wearing your yeah. my You're Not Alone shirt. Yeah, I'm, I'm here, huge on people knowing that you're not alone. It does not matter what you're struggling with. Addiction, there are millions of people struggling with the exact same thing. All right, so let's go to the questions I got in the email. Are you ready for a pop quiz? I'm ready. Let's do it. All right, here we go. I would like Kyle to talk about the mental process, what it was like to finally surrender to your very bottom, to give up and to ask for help. So I guess they want to know kind of like um, what what was your thought process at the darkest days just to get on your knees and say, I'm done. Like, yeah. how was that mentally? I kind of referred to it a little bit earlier. Um, so like I mentioned, I went to a faith based program and I had no experience really with church or the Bible or God or anything like that. But in that first six to eight weeks, uh, you know, I'm learning a lot, hearing a lot. And I started opening the Bible. 
And I was struggling with nine months. Like I had to go through this program for nine months. You know, forget that. I ain't trying. I'm, I'm not in <laughs> that. that. Well, there's a there's there's a scripture in Matthew seven. I think it's like verse twenty four or something. It talks about a wise man and a foolish man, and they build their house. One of them builds their house on sand, and one of them builds their house on rock. And God spoke to me through His Word, not audibly, but through reading that 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 scripture. And He said, "You have been a fool building your house on sand." What I'm trying to teach you and show you here is a way to be wise and build your house on the rock. And that takes some time. And so that was one of the moments that I really remember clearly of saying, okay, you know, like it's time, like, let's, let's do this. And, you know, and I thought worst case scenario at the end of nine months, my life's going to be a little bit better than it is today, you know? Yeah. But, you know, God had much more in store when it comes to changing and transforming my life. And, um, but that was kind of what it looked like where I said, you know what? You're right. Like, I, I'm a fool. Got nothing to lose. <laughs> nothing to lose. Yeah. Man, aren't we all? We're all fools. Don't don't feel alone in that either. <laughs> all right. Um, we kind of touched on this one, too. It said, how did you actually know you were finally ready? So I guess just being at the very bottom, huh? Like, no well, house, I, no family. I, nah, yeah, I saw that uh, question, and I, and I said, I didn't know. I mean, yeah. I didn't know. People, I mean, my circumstances is what led to me getting help. I did not sure, start this point. process with a huge desire to change my life and stop getting high and drinking. I started this process because I was scared, one, because of the things that I was experiencing in my mind and in my, you know, I was, I was hallucinating. And then I had nowhere else to go. So really my homelessness is what led me to go into treatment. That was my initial motivation. So I didn't know yeah. I was, I didn't know I was ready. Yeah. Honestly, <laughs> I didn't know, but I learned. And, and but just, I got somewhere where I was still for long enough, and the chemicals yeah. getting out of my mind and body, and got some medication to stabilize me, and I got to a place where I could receive. Um, and that's when I started realizing, you know, like I'm ready. I want to I want to do something for real. Yeah, I love it. That's awesome. Here's another one. Sometimes people fall into addiction because they think that it can help them. What would your thoughts on that perspective be? So what kind of advice, I guess, would you give somebody that's like, man, drugs, they help me. That's what helped me get through the day. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think I can certainly agree to that. I think at the beginning of all of our journeys, when it comes to this, we all we all want to change the way that we feel for some reason. And for whatever reason, we're, you know, we're getting help from that, whether it's to uh, to feel comfortable in our own skin, whether it's to cover up some old pain or some hurt that we've experienced. And so I think a lot of people start their journey of substance use, whether they become addicted or not. They, you know, substance use uh, a lot of times is covering something up. And, you know, my, my thoughts on it is, you know, it's the, it's it's possible to feel those feelings and to process those things that you've gone through without using a substance to cope with it. Yeah. It's not easy. It's oftentimes not fun, but it's where you can gain some authentic, true freedom and healing from it is when you face it without covering up. And you kind of, you know, you rip that Band-Aid off and you kind of clean out that wound. And the healing process, it doesn't just heal overnight. It takes some time, but when it heals back, it's strong. It's it's good. It's complete, you know, and there's not that wound still there being affected. Um, so I, I, I agree with it, the, the, the statement that the person made. And my thoughts on it was to be that, um, you know, as long as you're covering it up, you're never really going to actually deal with it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's great. Absolutely. Somebody asked, is it okay to slip up? So uh, I imagine a lot of people get super down on themselves when you're addicted. 
you do really well for a while and then you accidentally fall into it one day, you have a bad day or you slip up. What's your advice on that? Yeah, well, I would say that you never want to encourage someone to go use a drink, right? But it's a part of recovery. You know, some yeah. people, it's a part of my story. I, I went to treatment three times. The last time I went was my third time. And so the previous times, you know, I went back out and kept doing the same old thing. But I learned a lesson all those times. I look back and I learned something from it. Um, and so if you do find yourself in a place where you slipped up and you've returned to using or drinking, um, you know, the important thing is that you're alive. And, it, and I know it takes a lot of courage and strength to admit that, hey, I slipped up, slipped up. But know this, that in recovery rooms and meetings, like you're open, you're going to be welcomed with open arms and embrace because um, falling down is not the problem. It's when we stay down. That's the problem. Yeah. You know, we got to get way. back up. So it's okay to fall, but you got to get back up and learn from that fall. You know, take yeah. something from that and apply it to move forward. Yeah, I think that's fantastic. I think really that could go for anybody. I mean, we all have bad days, whether it's turning to drugs or alcohol or overeating or whatever the things we touched on, but it's okay. You're going to have bad days, you know, and mm -hmm. not that it's okay to go and get super shammered one day, but don't be so ashamed that you don't get back up and continue the process. Like people are going to forgive you. You had a bad day. We're human. That's kind of part of how we function. We're going to mess up, right? Yeah. All right. If you were to pick one thing, somebody wants to know what is the main thing that helped you get through. That's. I mean, that's a, that's an easy one. Um, it, well, I I just I came into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, and what that yeah. entails for me is like a day to day pursuit of being more like Him, being closer to Him, surrounding myself with people that are also doing that same thing, and that is what you know, has got me through what continues to get me through. And it's, it's that rock that I was talking about earlier, the yeah, rock that you build yeah. the foundation on. And so that's what allows me to, you know, you know, endure the storms of life and to stay strong and to keep moving forward and, uh, you know, to live, to see another day uh, for lack of better words. I love it. Absolutely. So we talked about this. Uh, somebody wanted to know how genetics played part of addiction, but we'll go with the first part of that. And it was, did you struggle with an addictive personality growing up? So I know you said you started at age 12, but before that, did you notice addictive things for anything else? I mean, TV shows, personalities, anything. Yeah, certainly. I think uh, before that and then everything in between, I mean, take drugs and alcohol out of the equation. Like, like I was a type of person, like if I didn't do something, I didn't do it. But then the first time I tried it for the first time, then I just did it. It would just became a part of who I am and yeah. what I did. And so that certainly translated into drug and alcohol use. But I mean, whatever it may be, finding balance in life is a very tricky yeah. thing to do with someone that struggles with addiction because we're always used to either living way up here or living way down here and living right here just doesn't feel right. But like, you know, like that's most life is just living right here. You know, it's not really exciting. It's not really crazy. Um, so finding that to be normal and, find, and trying to learn how to be just okay with just the mundaneness of life is yeah. it's a process that I, you know i'm still struggling with <laughs> but yeah i think that the addictive personality is certainly i could definitely look back and see in the past and my present i mean i see it today still you know like being it finding yeah. the way to balance things out is so important yeah yeah absolutely all right somebody what's up nick okay so nick asked why do current addicts tend to lack guilt about their actions towards their family members, which you kind of related to that as well, talking to your mom kind of disrespectfully. And you said you said 
um, a lot of hurtful and nasty things. So what what is that? What is the lack of guilt there? Well, because the, you have to realize that the individual that you're that you're interacting with is not your family member. Yeah. Um, the person is sick um, and, and they are in the middle of, uh, of addiction. And what what you're foreseeing as such a, you know, disrespectful, blatantly, um, you know, action that could be so clear to anybody else. You don't see it. You're blinded because your every action, every decision, every thought is driven by whatever your substance of choice is to get and to use that. And you destroy so many people. And so this is not uh, uh, it doesn't dismiss or excuse the actions. I've had to do a lot of work on making amends, asking for yeah. forgiveness, making things right. But at the same time, I was I honestly was not aware of what I was doing. And it wasn't until I did get into recovery for a little and, and part of the recovery process is looking back and reevaluating, take and taking an inventory of the things that you've done in your life, the good, the bad, the ugly, and kind of looking at, you know, and that sucks. That hurts, you know, Man, it, it yeah. hurts to look at that stuff. And but part of that process is acknowledge it, kind of like we were talking about earlier, acknowledging those things, digging those roots up, um, you know, confronting them and taking ownership in them. You know, if you can do things to make it right and move forward. But in the middle of it, uh, you know, honestly, I had no idea the the type of havoc that I was causing on my loved ones and my friends. And so, I, you know, it's not something that I was really intentionally doing. Yeah. Yeah. Man, that's sad. But um, I can't imagine how painful that is to kind of want to help yourself and you're doing good. And then that session where they're like, OK, think about all the bad things you've done and just from a clear state of mind replaying that and being able to be like oh my gosh i better start saying sorry to some people yeah um, i mean that's that it's laid out as a process like be very well, sure about, oh absolutely you know, like you you get to certain stages in this when you're ready you know what i mean oh yeah oh yeah absolutely i i'm sure every step is tough and it's one at a time because it would just be completely overwhelming to throw it all at you but um so for me i'm kind of curious myself like the friends that you had when you were the Kyle that did all the substance abuse, I'm sure you made, you know, you talked about being super alone, but I'm sure you had your circle and your acquaintances of dealers and users. Do you, when you first transitioned into getting clean and you know what I want to change, did they try to persuade you to come back? Were they still in your life? Did you have to completely just cut them out? How did that work? Well, this is one of the reasons I'm a, I'm a huge believer in treatment and specifically long-term treatment. So the program I went to was a nine-month program, which means I didn't have a cell phone. I didn't okay. have social media. I was in a program. I mean, I wasn't locked down. We were in the community. Sure. I was around a completely different uh, a group of people doing completely different things than I had been doing. And so I had a period of time where I was fully disconnected from all of that. And it made that easier. But once I had the opportunity to, I had a phone again, uh, you know, I learned that like, you know, there are some like actions that I've done that, you know, if I could reach out to people and apologize, I would. But as far as my old friends, like a lot of people may want to start trying to save their old friends. Um, and I'm here for anybody, but like I've learned to just kind of live my life out loud and live yeah. it uh, in the manner that's been set before me. And those people will either reach out to me or I'll run into them uh, in my life today. And if I do, that means I'm either at church or I'm at something to do with recovery. Oh, and so wow. it's a safe yeah. place. 
That's so going cool. back and trying to, you know, make those little connections for whatever reasons can be very dangerous. Um, so I, I've, I've kind of let, you know, God kind of like sort that out. And if someone's meant to be back in my past, which have a lot of, you know, a lot of fraternity brothers, a lot of friends that yeah. uh, were good people. And I actually heard like I, I've had the opportunity to to, to reconnect with them and, and kind of catch back up. Yeah, that's really cool. And that's awesome. Um, so last thing, and then we'll be done, kind of tell people what you're doing now. Again, we touched on, you know, you do peer recovery and things like that. What does that look like? Where do you do your speeches and your recovery? Like, where is that located? And how can people get a hold of you if they want to learn more? Or if, you know what, if they decide, I, I want part of that. I want that happiness. What what does it look like for you? Where are you working and how can they reach out to you? Okay. Yeah. Peer recovery. Um, so it's essentially your lived experience in addiction is the most valuable thing to bring to the table. And so even though I have a degree in, in addiction studies, it, it really has nothing to do with what I do for a job. Um, it's my recovery that, that, that qualified me for this position. And so being in recovery for two years or longer, you go through a training through the state um, for peer support. And once you go through that training, you begin a process of becoming certified, um, you know, just like any other credentialing um, process. You get credentialed and then they're hiring people like me at hospitals, jails, treatment centers, reentry programs, um, different, you know, settings like that to, to work with other individuals that are trying to get into recovery. And so for me, what that looks like is I work in the emergency department at UAMS. I was the, the first, peer, first peer specialist in the state to be working in this capacity in an ER. And so when someone comes in, um, they, you know, if they want to talk to me, I'll approach them, um, have a conversation with them, share my story, listen to their story or get them and get them connected to resources. If that's what they'd like to do. Um, I give out naloxone or Narcan to individuals that come in for overdose for them to take home with them to have access to. And if nothing else, like people have my number that they take with them. And that, from that point forward, they can reach out and call me. Um, at any point in time for me to get them connected to recovery and to treatment resources. And so I kind of just walk, walk that journey, whatever that looks like for the individual. I don't give advice. I don't tell someone what to do. I simply share from my lived experience and I guide the individual in whatever it is that they want to do and kind of talk through that process because navigating treatment is not the easiest thing to do in the world. And so when you're at that place where you're open minded to that, if there's anything I can do to make that process easier for you, that's what I'm there for. And uh, just kind of walk it with you. Um, you know, I'm also a supervisor. I'm one of the first 10 supervisors in the state. Um, so I essentially supervise other people working in this field and uh, kind of navigate, you know, navigate what they're going through and, and how they're working and help train. Uh, I go around and, and I share my story as often as I can. If someone asks me to share my story, I believe that what I've gone through is not just for me to have a better life. It's for me okay. to share with other people and for them to know that there's nothing special or unique about Kyle. Um, the process of recovery and a relationship with God will make the same thing happen in your life. And it's just all about uh, entering into that. And so I try to share that with the hope of, of giving people hope uh, and the hope of people, um, you know, find a little motivation to kind of pursue the same thing in their life. Um, and so that looks different. You know, I go a lot of different places, whether it be in the recovery world or the faith-based community world. Uh, and I'm so grateful for, for those opportunities to do that. Um, I'm actually getting ready to start a new job um, next week where I'll be um, kind of overseeing um, this project of credentialing peer support throughout the state. 
Um, so I, I can't like, get into too many details because I don't know yep. exactly what it's all going to look like, but it's a really cool <laughs> opportunity. It's a really great, um, you know, kind of step in, 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 in the direction that I'm going. It's super thankful for it, but, you know, I couldn't hear the very end of that. I'm not sure what happened. I see you, but I can't hear you. Um, so very good. Awesome. Congratulations on your job. So kind of like Kyle said earlier, he um, you can reach out to him. He gave his cell phone number and we can post that in the group, but you can also reach him on Facebook at Kyle Brewer. You can find him on Instagram. Um, his name is on here and everything. So feel free to reach out to him. You can reach out to me as well. Absolutely. We're both here for you. Um, I, I'm kind of with Kyle. My biggest thing, especially with this Q&A once a month, is you shouldn't feel alone. People are going through it. And I think the best thing that you can do is to realize you didn't just go through it for you, but you went through it to relate to people. You know what I mean? So you wouldn't be able to touch as many people as you have and save as many people as you have if you couldn't relate personally. So that is awesome. Thank you so much for sharing your story. I think he's having a little technical difficulty, but maybe he can hop back on here. But guys, thank you so much for tuning in. It was a ton of fun. Uh, I loved hearing Kyle's story. If you like these questions, these Q&As once a month, please feel free to uh, join my Patreon, which is Townsend, which is patreon.com slash Townsend Team Music. And so that's kind of how all this goes on. That's how it's sponsored. So feel free to look on there, join my team. Well, we're just about to go. Thank you so much for being on. Uh, it's been a blessing. It has been awesome. Everybody reach out to Kyle if you have any questions. Thanks for logging on and we'll see you guys later. I'll wave so that he can hear me. <laughs> Bye, Kyle. If you're looking to buy or sell, I have the perfect realty company for you. Clark & Co. Realty is located in the Benton, Bryant, Arkansas area. And they understand that buying or selling a home is more than just a transaction. It's a life-changing experience. That's why their team of highly seasoned real estate professionals is dedicated to providing exceptional, personalized services for all their clients. They truly take great pride in the relationships they build, and they always work relentlessly on the client's behalf to help them achieve their perfect real estate goals. They always have the client in mind, and I can speak firsthand when I say how reliable, trustworthy, and quick they were. When I was looking to buy my first home, they were there with me every step of the way, answering every question I could think of. They showed me a great amount of knowledge and patience through the process. It's no wonder they've won so many awards for their outstanding services and their excellent relationships with clients. So if you're looking to buy or sell, there is no better option than Clark & Co. Realty. If you enjoyed this conversation and are interested in becoming a sponsor, feel free to shoot me an email at townsendteenmusic at hotmail.com or shoot me a message on any social media platform at Townsend Team Music for more information. I would love for you to become a member to help spread awareness that you're not alone. Show me.